there are few places on the planet as contested as the India-Pakistan border, especially in Kashmir. Some of you will have been spoon-fed the supposedly dangerous nature of this notorious Indo-Pak rivalry. Both countries have nuclear weapons, but the border is infested with terrorists, and worse, it is the flashpoint to beat all flashpoints, because up in Kashmir, both countries contest one another's claims to the land each other is sitting on. The situation isn't new and has been brewing for decades. The issues go deep, are rooted in hundreds of years of history, and isn't going away anytime soon. At the highest level, this is a political and territorial conflict. If you scratch beneath the surface, it's more than that. It is ego, shared hatred, shared history, and shared land. Add religion to that mix, and the temperatures can get hotter than a spicy curry. Welcome to The Sinner, the alternative history podcast, a pod where we look at the past to understand the present. In this episode, episode 11, we look at the Indian independence movement. This will be part one of a three-part series on the origins of the modern Republic of India, the origins of the conflict with Pakistan over Kashmir, and the independence of Bangladesh. Before we dig into the history, I want to highlight a few things. One, British India consisted of modern Pakistan, modern India, modern Bangladesh, modern Sri Lanka, and modern Burma, aka Myanmar. Number two, if you don't get the geography, then get a map. But in short, Burma borders Thailand, Sri Lanka is an island off the southern tip of the Indian Peninsula, and Pakistan borders Iran and Afghanistan. In other words, not just a massive landmass, but also the most populated landmass on the planet. Before the British were there, there was no political entity called India. Before 1947, there was no Pakistan. The Mughals ruled before the arrival of the British, but by then the Mughals were weak and new princely states were upcoming. Prior to all that, we had a mix of Hindu, Sikh and Muslim rulers. Muslims arrived as invaders from the north, but as traders and settlers in the south, ultimately all trading and settling in the landmass. Before the Muslims, you had mostly Vedic, Jain and Buddhist, i.e. Indic beliefs. What we consider Hindus were not a unified entity, but groupings of philosophies. And finally, Burma and Sri Lanka got independence from the British in 1948, a year after independence of India and Pakistan. Like today, they are separate countries. When we think of India's independence movement, we think of Mohandas Karmchand Gandhi, the man who spoke softly and wielded a walking stick. He's often considered an icon of peace and freedom, not just in India, but everywhere. Yet, India's independence, like its dependence, is not straightforward. It's mixed up in the murky corridors of British civil servants, Indian nationalism, religious zeal, and an eye for an eye. By the way, it was Gandhi who coined the term. He said, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. And that was his quote. And we're going to see in this podcast just how close to reality that statement became. Because to me, Indian independence is a strange mix of peace, extreme violence, and outright war. Unlike some other independence movements, this, was, this one was spread out over a long period of time and fighting the British was only 20% of the event even though it appears to be the event itself. Let's start in 1857. 
because the first real organized independence movement came in 1857 against the East India Company. That was a company that ruled vast areas of the Indian subcontinent for about a century beforehand. Yes, a private company based in London traded on the stock exchange. The rebellion of 1857 was a large-scale rebellion in northern and central India against the British East India Company's rule, sometimes considered the first war of independence. It was suppressed and the British government took control of the East India Company, thus starting the official crown rule over the area. This rebellion was fed by resentments born of poor perceptions of the British, including menacing British-style social reforms, jarring land taxes, treatment of some rich landowners and princes, as well as scepticism about the improvements brought about by British rule. Many Indians rose against the British, however. Many also fought for the British, and the majority remained seemingly compliant and lethargic to British rule. Violence, which sometimes betrayed exceptional cruelty, was inflicted on both sides, on British officers and civilians, including women and children, by the rebels, and on the rebels and the supporters, including sometimes entire villages, by British reprisals. Cities of Delhi and Lucknow were laid to waste in the fighting and the British retaliation. Mangal Pandey, born 1827, died 1857, was an Indian soldier who played a key part in the events immediately preceding the outbreak of the Indian Rebellion of 1857. He was a sepoy, also an infantryman, in the 34th Bengal Native Infantry, or the BNI, Regiment of the British East India Company. He initiated an unsuccessful attack on a British officer. The attack by and punishment of Pandey is widely seen as the opening scene of what came to be known as the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Knowledge of his action was widespread amongst his fellow sepoys and is assumed to have been one of the factors leading to the general series of mutinies that broke out during the following months. Pandey would prove to be influential for later figures in the Indian nationalist movement like V.D. Savarkar, who viewed his motive as one of the earliest manifestations of Indian nationalism. The decades following the rebellion were a period of growing political awareness, the manifestation of Indian public opinion and the emergence of Indian leadership at both national and provincial levels. Dadabhai Naroji formed the East India Association in 1867 and Surendranath Banerjee founded the Indian National Association in 1876. Inspired by a suggestion made by A.O. Hume, a retired Scottish civil servant, 72 Indian delegates met in Bombay in 1885 and founded the Indian National Congress. They were mostly members of the upwardly mobile and successful Western-educated provincial elites, engaged in professional professions such as law, teaching and journalism. At its inception, Congress had no well-defined ideology and commanded few of the resources essential to a political organization. Instead, it functioned more as a debating society that met annually to express its loyalty to the British large and passed numerous resolutions on less controversial issues such as civil rights, opportunities in government, etc. By the year 1900, although Congress had emerged as an all-India political organization, it did not have the support of most Indian Muslims. Attacks by Hindu reformers against religious conversions, cow slaughter, 
and the preservation of Urdu in Arabic script deepened their concerns of minority status and denial of rights if Congress alone were to represent the people of India. The next big event after 1857 was the first and ultimately unsuccessful partition of Bengal as a territorial reorganization of the Bengal presidency in 1905. The partition separated the largely Muslim areas in the east from the, to the largely Hindu areas on the west. And this happened on the 16th of October 1905 after being announced on the 19th of July 1905 by Lord Curzon, then the Viceroy of India. The partition of Bengal, however, was short-lived and Lord Curzon's move was repealed just six years later. Following the fiasco of the Bengal partition, or lack thereof, some nationalist movements began springing up. Three in particular are ones I want to discuss. The Congress movement, the Muslim League, and other more violent nationalist movements. Let's start with the Congress movement. Nationalistic sentiments amongst Congress members ultimately led to the movement to be represented in various government bodies, thus having a say in the legislation and administration of India. Congressmen saw themselves as loyalists, but wanted an active role in governing their own country, admittedly still as part of the empire. This trend was personified by Dadabhai Neruji, who went as far as contesting successfully an election to the House of Commons of the United Kingdom in London, becoming its first Indian member. Bal Gandhaka Tilak was the first Indian nationalist to embrace Swaraj as the destiny of the nation. Tilak deeply opposed the then British education system that ignored and defamed India's culture, history and values. He resented the denial of freedom of expression for nationalists and the lack of any voice or role for ordinary Indians in the affairs of their nation. For these reasons, he considered Swaraj as the natural and only solution. His popular sentence, Swaraj is my birthright and I shall have it, became the source of inspiration for Indians. By 1907, Congress was split into two factions. The radicals, led by Tilak, advocated civil agitation and direct revolution to overthrow the British Empire and the abandonment of all things British. The moderates were led by people like Naroji and Gopal Krishna Gokhale, who wanted reform within the framework of British rule. Tilak was backed by rising public leaders like Bipin Chandrapal and Lala Rajput Rai, who had the same point of view. The group arose out of a literary movement begun at the Aligarh Muslim University and was formed in Dhaka, which is now in Bangladesh, many years after the death of Said Ahmad Khan, who was actually the central figure of the formation of the university. It remained an elitist organization until 1937, when the leadership began mobilizing the Muslim masses and the League then became a popular organization. Finally, outside of the Muslim League, there were other, more violent nationalist movements. Subhash Chandra Bose, one of the most famous of these supposedly violent Indian nationalists, identified with what became known as the INA, or the Indian National Army. The INA was an armed force formed by Indian nationalists and Imperial Japan in 1942 in Southeast Asia during World War II. Its aim was to secure Indian independence from British rule. 
It fought alongside Japanese soldiers in the latter's campaign in Southeast Asia. The army was first formed in 1942 under Mohan Singh by Indian prisoners of war of the British Indian Army captured by Japan in the Malaysian campaign and at Singapore. Under Bose's leadership, the INA drew ex-prisoners and thousands of civilian volunteers from the Indian expat population in Malaya, present-day Malaysia, and Burma. This second INA fought along with the Imperial Japanese Army against the British and Commonwealth forces in the campaigns of Burma, Impal, Kohima, and later the Allied retaking of Burma. Incidentally, both also visited Nazi Germany during World War II and met Hitler. Their aims to rid the British were violent and any alliance would do. My enemy's enemy is my friend, is basically what both believed in. Anushahlin Samiti was an Indian organization in the first quarter of the 20th century that supported revolutionary violence as a means for ending British rule in India. From its foundation to its dissolution during the 1930s, the Samiti challenged British rule in India by engaging in militant nationalism, including bombings, assassinations and politically motivated violence. The Samiti collaborated with other revolutionary organizations in India and abroad. It was led by the nationalists Aurobindo Ghosh and his brother Barinda Ghosh. Yutnaga was one of the two main secret revolutionary trends operating in Bengal for Indian independence. This association, like the Samiti, started in the guise of suburban fitness club. Several Yutnagar members were arrested, hanged or deported for life to cellular jail in the Ardman Islands. Some senior members of the group were sent abroad for political and military training. One of them, Haramchandra, obtained his training in Paris. After returning to Kolkata, he set up a combined religious school and bomb factory at a garden house in a suburb of Calcutta. However, the attempted murder of a district judge, Kingsford of Muzaffarpur, by Kuldeem Bose and Palfa Kachaki in 1908, initiated a police investigation that led to the arrest of many of the revolutionaries. Benoy Basu, Badal Gupta and Dinesh Gupta were noted for launching an attack on the Secretariat building, the Writers' Building in the Dalhouse Square in Kolkata. Bhaga Jatin was one of the top leaders in Yutnagar. He was arrested along with several other leaders in connection with the Havra Sipur conspiracy case. They were tried for treason, the charge being that they had incited various regiments of the army against the ruler. There were other plots and conspiracies, such as the Alipur bomb conspiracy case, the Havra gang case, the Delhi Lahore conspiracy case, the first Christmas Day and second Christmas Day plots. In 1914, the First World War began with an unprecedented outpouring of support towards Britain from within the mainstream political leadership. Contrary to initial British fears of Indian revolt, Indians contributed considerably to the British war effort by providing men and resources. About 1.3 million Indian soldiers and labourers served in Europe, Africa and the Middle East, while both the Indian government and the princes sent large supplies of food, money and ammunition. Nonetheless, Bengal and Punjab remained hotbeds for anti-colonial activities. What World War I also taught these Indian soldiers is that fighting for the British wasn't worth it. Imagine dying in a Belgian trench fighting someone else's war. What exactly were these Indian, in the case of World War I, any soldier actually fighting for? 
Outside India, these sahibs were just as pathetic as anyone else. Those that survived and returned to India told these stories. The Hindu-German conspiracy was a series of plans between 1914 and 1917 by the Indian nationalist groups to attempt pan-Indian rebellion against the British Raj during World War I, formulated between the Indian Revolutionary Underground and exiled or self-exiled nationalists. The Ghadar Mutiny was a plan to initiate a pan-Indian mutiny in the British Indian Army in February 1915 to end British Raj in India. The plot originated at the onset of World War I between the Ghadar Party in the United States, the Berlin Committee in Germany and the Indian Revolutionary Underground in British India and the German Foreign Office through the consulate in San Francisco. The incident derives its name from the North American Ghadar Party whose members of the Punjabi Sikh community in Canada and the US were among the most prominent participants of the plan. In August 1917, Edwin Montague, Secretary of State for India, made a historic announcement in Parliament that the British policy was for increasing association of Indians in every branch of the administration and the gradual development of self-governing institutions with a view to progressive realisation of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire. The means of achieving the proposed measures were later enshrined in the Government of India Act 1919, which introduced the principle of a dual mode of administration or diarchy in which both elected Indian legislatures and appointed British officials shared power. So far, Gandhi hasn't even been in India. He's been in England and British South Africa. Gandhi returned to India on 9th of January 1915 and initially entered the political fray not with calls of a nation-state, but in support of a unified commerce-orientated territory that the Congress party had been asking for. Gandhi believed that the industrial development and educational development that the Europeans had brought were long required to alleviate many of India's chronic problems. Gopal Krishna Gokhale a veteran congressman and Indian leader, became Gandhi's mentor. Gandhi's ideas and strategies of non-violent civil disobedience initially appeared impractical to some Indians in their Congress leaders. In the Mahatma's own words, civil disobedience is civil breach of immoral statutory enactments. It had to be carried out non-violently by withdrawing cooperation with the corrupt state. The positive impact of reform was seriously undermined in 1919 by the Rowlett Act, named after recommendations made the previous year to the Imperial Legislative Council by the Rowlett Committee. Agitation unleashed by the acts led to British attacks on demonstrators, culminating on the 13th of April 1919 in the Jainwala Bagh Massacre, also known as the Amritsar Massacre in Punjab. The British commander, Brigadier General Reginald Dyer blocked the main and only entrance and ordered his soldiers to fire into an unarmed and unsuspecting crowd of some 15,000 men, women and children. They had assembled peacefully at the Janwala Barg, a walled courtyard, but Dyer had wanted to execute the imposed ban at all meetings and proposed to teach all Indians a lesson in the harshest way possible. A total of 1,651 rounds were fired killing 379 people, and that's according to official British Commission estimates. 
Indian official estimates range as high as 1,500 and wounding 1,100 in the massacre. Dyer was forced to retire, but was hailed as a hero by some in Britain, demonstrating to Indian nationalists that the empire was beholden to public opinion in Britain, but not in India. The episode was a blot on British rule and a turning point in the history of Indian independence, leading to the non-cooperation movements that were to follow. From 1920 to 1922, Gandhi started the non-cooperation movement. At the Kolkata session of Congress in September 1920, Gandhi convinced other leaders of the need to start a non-cooperation movement in support of caliphate as well as for dominion status. The first Satyagraha movement urged the use of curry and the Indian material as alternatives to those shipped from Britain. It also urged people to boycott British educational institutions and law courts, resign from government employment, refuse to pay taxes, and forsake British titles and honours. Although this came too late to influence the framing of the new Government of India Act of 1919, the movement enjoyed widespread popular support, and the resulting unparalleled magnitude of disorder presented a serious challenge to foreign rule. However, Gandhi called off the movement because he was scared, after the Chori Chara incident which saw the death of 22 policemen at the hands of an angry mob and worried that India could descend into some kind of anarchy. Gandhi was sentenced in 1922 to six years in prison, but was released after serving just two years. On his release from prison, he set up an ashram in Ahmedabad. He established the newspaper Young India, inaugurating a series of reforms aimed at the socially disadvantaged within Hindu society, the rural poor and the untouchables. This era saw the emergence of a new generation of Indians from within the Congress party, including Ulan Azad, Rajagopal Chari, Jawaharlal Nehru, Vallabhai Patel, Subhashandra Bose and others who would later on come to form the most prominent voices of the Indian self-rule movement, whether keeping with Gandhian values, or in the case of Bose, the Indian National Army and diverging from it. The Declaration of the Independence of India was announced by the Indian National Congress on the 26th of January 1930, resolving that the Congress and Indian nationalists fight for Purnasawaj, or complete self-rule independent of the British Empire. The flag of India was hoisted by Jawaharlal Nehru on the 31st of December 1929 on the banks of the Ravi River in Lahore, now in Pakistan. The Congress asked the people of India to observe 26th of January as Independence Day. The flag of India was hoisted publicly across India by Congress volunteers, nationalists and the public. The Government of India Act of 1935 was an act of the Parliament of the United Kingdom. It originally received royal assent in August 1935. It was the longest act of parliament ever enacted until the Greater London Authority Act of 1999. Because of its length, the act was retroactively split by the Government of India into two separate acts. One, the Government of India Act 1935, having 321 sections and 10 schedules. And two, the Government of Burma Act 1935, having 159 sections and 6 schedules. The most significant aspects of the act were the grant of a large measure of autonomy to the provinces of British India, ending the system of Dairaki introduced by the Government of India Act 1919, provision for the establishment of a federation of India to be made up of both British India and some or all of the princely states, the introduction of direct elections thus increasing the franchise from 7 million to 35 million people, 
followed by some reorganization of the provinces. For example, Sindh was separated from Bombay, Bihar and Orissa were split into separate provinces, Burma was completely separated from India, Aden was also detached from India and established as a separate crown colony. Membership of the provincial assemblies was altered so as to include any number of elected Indian representatives who were now able to form majorities and be appointed into formal governments. Finally, there was also the establishment of a federal court. However, the degree of autonomy introduced at the provincial level was subject to important limitations. The provincial governors retained important reserve powers and the British authorities also retained the right to suspend responsible government. This brings us to the Lahore Resolution. In February 1937, provincial autonomy became a reality when elections were held. The Congress emerged as a dominant party with a clear majority in five provinces and held an upper hand in two, while the Muslim League performed poorly. In 1939, the Viceroy Lindgo declared India's entrance into Second World War without consulting the provincial governments. In protest, the Congress asked all of its elected representatives to resign from the government. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the president of the All India Muslim League, persuaded participants at the annual Muslim League session in Lahore in 1940 to adopt what later came to be known as the Lahore Resolution demanding the division of India into two separate sovereign states, one Muslim, the other Hindu, sometimes referred to as a two-nation theory. Although the idea of Pakistan had been introduced as early as 1930, very few had responded to it. In opposition to the Lahore Resolution, the All India Azad Muslim Conference gathered in Delhi in April 1940 to voice its support for a united India. Its members included several Islamic organizations in India, as well as 1,400 nationalist Muslim delegations. Incidentally, the attendance at the nationalist meeting was about five times that the attendance of the League meeting. Now we move on to the Quit India movement. The Quit India movement, or Bharat Choro movement, or the August movement, was a civil disobedience movement in India, which commenced on 8th of August 1942 in response to Gandhi's call for immediate self-rule by Indians and against sending Indians to World War II. He asked all teachers to leave their schools and other Indians to leave their respective jobs and take part in this movement. Due to Gandhi's political influence, his request was followed by a significant proportion of the population. In addition, Congress led the Quit India movement to demand the British to leave India and transfer the political power to a representative government. During the movement, Gandhi and his followers continued to use non-violence against British rule this movement was where Gandhi gave his famous message, Do or Die. World War II was one of the most significant factors in accelerating Indian independence and the independence of many British and non-British colonies. Britain was left bankrupt and nearly occupied and survived with support from the US and USSR. With the advent of the Attlee government at Westminster in 1945, the dialogue in London soon began to change as they considered the bubbling Indian political landscape, their own election manifesto, and the real geopolitical problems that they faced at the time. Next time, we look at part two, independence, partition, and Kashmir. Join me for what will forever be known as the largest human mass migration in history. This is the Sinner Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen.